My name is Matt Walton. I'm the Aung San Suu Kyi Senior Research Fellow in Modern Burmese Studies here at St. Anthony's College uh, and also a member of the Asian Studies Center. And the Asian Studies Center is thrilled uh, to be able to host the book launch tonight uh, for our friend and colleague, Dr. Pia Jolliffe. Uh, I'm going to give a brief introduction to Pia right now. Uh, she's going to talk for a little bit about the book herself. Um, and then the way that we usually do uh, book launches here is we invite another colleague to give kind of um, a review and questions and, and, and to kind of start off the discussion. Uh, we'll give Pia a chance to respond um, to any of the questions raised by Dr. Reshmi Banerjee, who's a visiting scholar here uh, at St. Nancy's College. Um, and actually, you, you should keep an eye out. Reshmi's um, uh, book review of Pia's book will be appearing on our blog, T-Circle, uh, in the next week or so. Um, but so we'll, we'll give Reshmi uh, the floor to talk about Pia's book, ask some questions, we'll let Pia respond, and then we'll turn it over to any uh, questions from you. I, I know that a lot of you uh, work on Myanmar, uh, have an interest in Myanmar, Burma, uh, and have some questions uh, for Pia about this. So um, also the final sort of housekeeping notes, we have a few copies of the book uh, that are on sale that I'm uh, authorized to sell you. We also have flyers uh, here for the book um, that have an online discount uh, of 30% of off the list price. Um, the, so the official title of the book, Learning, Migration, and Intergener Intergenerational Relations, uh, The Quran and the Gift of Education. <clears throat> uh, the title of the, of the book launch here and of Pia's talk, Learning, Migration, Intergenerational Relations, among Karen refugees in Thailand and the United Kingdom. Uh, the book is published by Palgrave Macmillan in the UK. Uh, it's, it retails for 60 pounds, however, you can buy it for 45 tonight uh, or um, a deeply discounted price uh, online with this flyer. So please, if you're interested in buying the book, uh, either buy it tonight or, or pick up a flyer there. So it's really, it's, it's really fun for me to be able to introduce Pia. Um, in my life before I was a political scientist working on Myanmar, I was a musician and composer. And that's always kind of a, you know, people are surprised at that and say, oh, you had this, this, this other life. Um, and it turns out that, that uh, Pia has had about 14 different lives um, and, and all of these different careers. And even if you just go around the St. Anthony's community here, uh, you'll see some of us who know her as a scholar of Burma, of the Karen, um, of education in Myanmar and Thailand. Uh, you go right across the way to the Nissan Center for Japanese Studies, and you'll know people who know her as a scholar of Japan, who's worked on, J on Japan for a long time and is now kind of coming back to do more work on Japan. If you go down to the administrative offices below us, our development director and his wife, <laughs> Nupia, um, when, when she was a nun in Israel, um, and so she has had all of these different kind of careers and, and versions, and, and of course we had a wonderful uh, introduction to her, her career as mother, her new career as mother, um, because her, her son Joseph is here also supporting her. Uh, so it's really wonderful for us to be able to support Pia uh, and her work. She's been a great colleague here at Oxford supporting uh, Burma-Myanmar studies, uh, engaged in, in all of our events, working with, with uh, you know, to, to organize things like the, um, the Southeast Asia uh, Symposium and will be working with us in the coming year to organize the uh, European Southeast Asia Studies uh, uh, Conference that we'll be holding in Oxford in August 2017. Um, so uh, Pia is right now, her affiliations are as a research scholar at Blackfriars Hall here at Oxford and uh, also a research fellow at the Institute of Population Aging just uh, across the street. 
And, and she has worked on a lot of different uh, topics related to aging, to education, to families, to population. And what she's presenting on now is work that she's been doing for, for a while, um, having moved from working with communities in Thailand, Karen communities in Thailand, to a kind of um, intergenerational migrant community uh, across the UK and, and other parts of the world. Uh, we're thrilled to be able to support her for the book launch today, and I will turn it over to Pia um, to talk to us a little bit about her book. Please join me in welcoming her. Well, thank you for the introduction, Matthew, and um, thank you um, for yeah for having this book launch. It's really a joy to present it. It's the book is um it's a year-long work, so it, although the, the volume is quite slim, um, I started to work on it actually in 2006 when I came for my DPhil, um, before I came for my DPhil to Oxford. Um, and my contact with the Karen also started in 2006 before um, I came to Oxford. It was, um, I was volunteering for a master program in, in Geneva, doing some work um, in the refugee camps. Um, and yeah, then I came to Oxford precisely to um, work with the Karen and to look at youth issues and young people in and around refugee camps. And this became also doctoral <coughs> and then my postdoctoral work. So it's um, it's on and off. I'm almost yeah ten years actually now. Um, I I'm in contact with the Karen first with the Karen from um, Burma or Myanmar, as the country is called today, and then um, later I spent one year in a Karen village um, in Thailand, and. Um, what can I say? The better I got to know the Karen, the more, um, um, yeah, the more, um, the, 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 the more I became also interested in, in their history and in um, in the relations between the Karen from um, Burma and the Karen in Thailand and um, this whole issue. Um, the book itself is structured in um, in quite um, it's 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 part in ethno ethnography, partly also historical research. Um, the DPhil was actually mostly ethnographic work. I spent one year in a rice farming village, accompanied with a current family, going with the children um, to school and looking at childhood and youth transitions in the village, and also migrating the role of um, education for mig migration. But then um, I spent um, in the last two years more, more time on historical research on the Karen, and the British Library here in London has quite good sources to understand better the role of um, um, missionaries um, who brought um, first <coughs> of modern schooling to the Karen in the um, already actually in the 17th and then mostly 18th, 18th and 19th century in in Burma. Um, so the book has um, uh, five core chapters, and these focus um, one chapter focuses first on traditional learning among the Karen because um, schooling is only one form of learning, right? There are so many different forms that um, we can learn. We learn often learning by doing. And um, in many, even, even nowadays today, in, um, in every household, children learn by imitating their parents. And this is what I looked at. Um, this is one chapter really explores how the Karen actually still today um, learn, children learn by imitating their parents from, an er from early childhood onwards. Um, then another chapter focuses <coughs> on school and how school was actually introduced and also the, um, um, yeah, how school first arrived, um, or first ideas of modern schooling arrived um, through um, Catholic missionaries um, who arrived in the, in, in, the, in the 17th century in Burma and first um, um, were hosted at the royal court 
and then later uh, um, got permission to go as well to the frontiers of the country and to teach the, the Karen and other um, people who lived in relative poverty. There is another chapter that focuses on schools at sites of inclusion and marginalization. Um, again, the Karen are an ethnic minority. Now, what is a minority is, of course, always um, subject to definition. Um, majorities generally define who is a minority, but um, the Karen people, both in, in Burma but also in Thailand, <coughs> are a minority and they go to majority schools. Um, in Thailand, there is still no mother tongue education for Karen children, but they go to normal um, Thai schools and struggle because <coughs> often. Of course, if you speak another language at, at home than <coughs> in at school, um, you have a disadvantage, especially if the language at home is not a language that has a lot of written material, but rather you only speak it. But then at school, you, um, you're supposed to um, write and um, speak in a different language. Um, you, you have a disadvantage. So this chapter um, looks at these issues. But at the same time, of course, schooling is also um, a way of inclusion by going to a Thai school, um, current children actually learn and get the cultural means to participate in society, right? And the same in Burma. You need to learn to know the language, and it's not only the language, it's also the body language, for example, the polite language. How do I greet um, someone who is my superior, a, a teacher or an older um, student? What kind of body language do I have? This is very important in as many of you know in Thailand and in other Southeast Asian countries, not only how do I speak, but how do I um, keep my body. Um, and this is different for the in Karen homes and in, in <coughs> schools um, or in Thai society. So the children learn a lot and this is um, also helpful for them. Another chapter looks at uh, migration for education. Now, nowadays, most most Karen actually they, they have to migrate for edu for education. This was one of the big surprises for me because I grew up in Vienna, going to school from to primary school, moving on to secondary school, and it was all in one place. And um, I just had to go with the tram from one place from home to school. But I never had to leave my hometown um, and go to another place and be separated from my parents or from the community where I grew up. Now for the Karen, it's quite the normality that everyone, um, as soon as they, uh, they go to secondary school and some even earlier for primary school, children leave their parental household and go to another village or to another town um, to study. They often leave them with um, relatives or, or in a dormitory and it's, it's quite common for them to move around a lot. And this is actually during my DPhil research, I accompanied children when they migrated for education. But it was something entirely new to me. So there is a whole chapter that explores a little bit um, why that traces the pathways of children. There's often a reason why children go from one village to another or, or to another city. And it's often really, um, it's often also related to their parents' aspirations. Parents might send their children to a home where um, of, of a richer relative or they send their children to help um, or someone who is, um, a priest or a monk, a Buddhist monks do the same. They help the children to access education in through scholarships. So there is a lot of, um, it's not a random choice why children migrate where and who's <coughs> supporting them. So the chapter analyzes this a little bit. And then um, another chapter looks at migration for education, particularly among the Karen from Burma, because in the last years, um, hundreds if not thousands of young people from Burma came to Thailand to um, camps for displaced persons to access education. So they, they really came because there was no way for them to, um, to attend um, higher secondary school um, in the current state of Burma. So they knew about these education opportunities in the camps. 
and arrived there. Sometimes people told me um, that this is, this is quite known, that um, they arrive for education and, and not for something more severe, but it's, it's, it's not very much talked about because obviously when you arrive in a camp for displaced persons, your primary reason should be that you say, oh, I, I experienced um, human <coughs> rights abuses, um, I was um, mistreated and this is why um, I come here in order to qualify for refugee status. No, we have a very um, strict refugee definition and that does usually not ex include um, the not having access for education is not usually a reason to qualify as a refugee. So this is why people officially don't speak much about it, but there has actually been a lot of movement and migration for education into these um, camps. And of course, not having access to education is also related to um, to human rights, so it's, in, it's an indirect consequence of um, human rights abuses. Um, and a last chapter looks at the Karen um, who arrived from Thailand in the UK on resettlement and who are now going to schools in the UK. Most of them are in Sheffield um, and I interviewed, I went several times to Sheffield to make focus group interviews with young people and um, I was interested in the transition um, how they experienced the transition from education in the camps in Thailand um, when coming to the UK. Um, yeah, that's the basic structure of the book. Um, if you have questions, I'm very happy to um, talk about certain issues more, but um, I wait for your questions, I think. Yeah. Thanks very much. Well, so, let's, so let's turn it over to Reshmi to make a few yeah. sort of comments and um, other things about the book, and and then we can sort of open it up to a broader yes. questions. Well, uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming this evening, and my special thanks to the youngest scholar in St. Anthony's this evening, Devi Joseph. Um, congratulations, Pia. It's a fantastic book. I finished the book in two days because I found it so interesting. Okay, Ravi Arizia, speak loudly. Um, you know, when I was reading this book, um, there's one statement of Mark Twain which I distinctly remember. Um, he said that I have never let my schooling interfere with my education. <laughs> so you might change schools, you might go to different countries, but your education is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process of learning and then unlearning all those things which are hindering your thought processes. So it's a continuous process and you learn till the last day, I feel. Um, so there's, there's obviously an importance of education and I think Pia's book connects this uh, problem that the Karen are having because they've moved in three different countries and links that with the role of education and the importance of education. I think that's the beauty of the book. Um, as I said, it's a lifelong process and education gives us the tool, it's an instrument whereby you, know, you make uh, reasonable uh, choices, you're more informed. <coughs> meaningful choices mm. and decision making happens and therefore education is a must for everybody it's 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 the right you know like you have right to food and water it's your basic right the moment you're born education starts um, and yet education i think is also used as a tool in every country whichever region you come from it's used as a tool by the dominant majority to preserve certain kind of power arrangements you know certain kind of thought processes are kind of gently nudged through our schooling process, whether we like it or not. And therefore, one also has to be vigilant as to what kind of education you're embracing. And if you're learning something which you shouldn't be learning, then unlearn that whole process. And that's why education is such a fantastic 
you know, process of learning throughout your life. Um, as Pia has mentioned, I think education can also occur in very informal uh, ways and it starts from home and therefore whether it's gender, you know, the gender aspect of it or what you're learning from your parents in that home space is, is very, very important. And I think the Karen community, you know, um, right from the time that they're giving these daily chores to their boys and girls, their entire uh, daily practices becomes part of their uh, learning. And one interesting thing which I find in the book is that diligence, the quality of diligence, is actually equated to goodness. You know, so if you're diligent in your work and you're very serious and sincere towards, you know, even looking after the cattle or, uh, you know, looking after the rice fields or weaving, you have to be very good at it. And I think, therefore, the social morality of your economic activities, uh, you learn that within the family at a very, very young age. And I think that has stayed on with the Karen community, wherever they have gone. Um, also, I think you will find in the book that there are multiple uh, players who are actually helping the community to move forward, mm. you know, whether it's the Christian missionaries, whether it's the monks and the priests, or the international humanitarian agencies, everybody is actually helping the community to achieve what they want to achieve by creating a kind of facilitating environment. They're not pushing you towards a particular kind of education, but helping you to make those choices. Here are these choices, you can you know, kind of embrace these choices. Um, a very interesting part again of the book is how schools become sites of contest. You know, so are they really arenas of learning or they are arenas of assimilation? And is assimilation then a good thing? So is it a neutral space or is it not a neutral space? And I think that you come to know when you you know, uh, read about the Thai schools and how the current um, youth are adjusting, constantly adjusting to this uh, Thai school system. Um, also, there's a section on women. I think that is, again, very, very uh, fascinating because it's a paradoxical situation for the um, girls because on one side they're getting education and therefore they feel free. They are becoming more mobile. They can move anywhere they want. Um, and at the same time, they feel that when they are wearing their traditional clothing, they are open to discrimination. And, you know, all the gossip about friendships, wherever they go to a new place, they are subjected to that. So it's not a very traditional, um, you know, space for them. And yet they are embracing whatever changes are good for them. Um, so, you know, when she talks about also the UK experience in Sheffield and Hull and how the... Um, you know, the school children are adjusting. It's interesting that the primary school children adjust well. So the younger you are, the more, you know, easier it is to adjust. Whereas the secondary school children have to kind of, you know, struggle with the youth culture of the UK. It's very different. How <coughs> a teacher and a student interacts is very different from what we face in Asia. So it's, it's completely a different landscape for them. So they struggle a little bit. And yet, I think they're open to the fact that the UK's provides them a space for critical questioning. It provides mm -hmm. them academic independence. You can question, you know, nobody will, you know, kind of say why you're questioning. So <coughs> why question doesn't happen. So I think in a way their minds are opening to new thought processes. Um, I found the pictography which is used in the book very interesting because it kind of captures the life stories of, uh, of the current youth and tells these stories about endurance, you know, so the canvas of learning and a good education is actually limitless. Um, the positives, I think, I think three very big positives of, of the narrative, that hardships never, ever stop the Karen youth from <coughs> dreaming, you know? They continuously, you know, were thinking about their dreams, what they're gonna do, and they, 
kind of dream were dreaming big um, also they never forgot their duty towards the next generation you know they always wanted to kind of help the next generation and gift this kind of strength of education to the next uh, you know next group which is great because they were not letting their you know hardships get in get in the way of uh, logical thinking and reasonable thinking um, also i think at no point they devalued their um, you know karen identity even when they were in the uk or in thailand i think they never devalued their traditional skills which is you know rice uh, growing weaving so even while they were adapting they remembered that their strengths are these and so it's it's kind of an interesting story i have a few questions and I'll, i think mm -hmm. i'll open the house after that which is that um, you know education is seen as a gift by them and i think pia also mentions that education is a gift uh, my question is should education be viewed as a gift or as a right because gift is something which you give to someone mm -hmm. yeah a birthday gift right from a birthday gift you are giving it to someone whereas right is something that you know you're born with it you have a you are born and you have a right to a water food education so should it be seen as a gift or as a as a right mm -hmm. um the second is i think you talk about how personal ambitions or aspirations of the current youth kind of they are conflicting with their need to help their family so on one side these current girls and boys want to you know dream big and they want to have this very very uh, ambitious life they, they are ambitious and they want a big uh, you know job and everything and yet they have to help their household and they have to mm -hmm. help with the you know family income so where do you see that conflict of interest going um also schools you know i think can schools be a neutral space in any country i mean mm -hmm. do they always have a kind of hidden agenda and can they really be a neutral space to uh, embrace a new culture a new you know completely you're coming from completely different country different region <coughs> so how how neutral can you be and what specific problems do women face you know how mm. i mean the girl child uh, do they specifically have certain issues that need to be dealt with and uh, i think my final uh, comment would be you know that you've talked about conflict displacement migration and they are you know moving in these three different countries with completely different mindscapes mm -hmm. um you know any conflict any displacement will have mental trauma right some kind of stress some kind of uh, you know you might not show it in your daily lives but somewhere it is seeping through in your in your behavior in the way you are you know making your choices uh, so do you see that happening in in the, in you know in your field work when you were talking to these uh, children uh, do you find those kind of signs i mean i'm not talking about the mental health you know the whole issue medical issue but somewhere that stress seeping through in their decision making so I'll stop there, and then uh, we can have questions later. Thank you. Yeah, do you want to respond yes. to any of Rashmi's questions, yes. and then we can kind of open it up to the floor? Yes. Um, the first question was education as a gift or as a right. Um, I think education can be a gift and a, and a right at the same time, because um, the concept of gift, um, those of you who um, read Marcel <coughs> Mauss, um, the anthropologist, I took this concept from his theory. He wrote this book, The Gift, um, and the idea is that um, actually a gift is never um, purely never is never purely um, a gift that does not expect something in return. So, um, and I apply this um, theory to education. That actually education, you give it in one way, you teach children, but then something is expected to come back in return, um, or something there has to be something um, an exchange of um, 
not of goods, but in this sense of, in, in, this, in this case of knowledge and skills. Um, but at the same time, this um, exchange is never equal. So although you give something, you will not receive the same, something, something of, of the same value back. Often it takes time also to return a gift, and the same with education. Um, you teach children, but um, of course they cannot immediately return the benefits of this teaching to their parents, but it can take years or even decades um, for a child to grow up into a person to um, um, return or to support his or her parents. But in, in some way, um, this relates to this question um, how um, if children um, actually suffer in, in households and if there's a conflict of interest, I think 